0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuan Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about Cambridge University Press' new book, Global China's Matter, are Ivan Franceschini from Australian National University and Nicholas Luber from Lund University in Sweden. They co-author Global China's Matter, and the book was published this summer, 2022. The book is available as an open access book. You can download the entire book on the internet. That is really wonderful news. Well, welcome, Nicholas and Ivan. Before I let you introduce yourself, I would like to give a hint to our audience about this book. This book starts with a core assumption that China is often orientalized and externalized as something, a country that is very special and that functions very differently from the rest of the world. The authors of this book try to challenge this image and try to argue that, in fact, China is functioning very similarly to many examples in history and in the modern time in the world. The book uses several very timely and controversial examples to illuminate this point, ranging from the issue of social credit system, the re-education camps in Xinjiang, to the Build and Road Initiative project. Congratulations, Ivan and Nicholas, and thank you for coming here today. Could you briefly introduce yourself? Hello.
2: Uh, yeah, I am Ivan, and my, I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University. I'm also an editor at the Made in China Journal, the Global China Pulse, and now also the Asia-Pacific Journal. And uh, my work has been mostly about labor rights and civil society in China, but now, today, in the past few years at least, I've been working more and more about global China, as seen from the vantage point of Cambodia.
0: And, Nicholas? Yeah, I'm Nicholas. I'm a lecturer at Lund University in Sweden my phd and postdoc research uh, mainly examined microcredit programs and financial service provision in rural china uh, more broadly including the digital turn to new financial technologies and all that that has entailed uh, over the past decade plus Um, my current research is uh, examining informal and semi-formal modes of uh, chinese extractivism globally from small-scale gold mining in ghana to cryptocurrency mining in the US and Sweden. And along with Ivan, I'm the co-editor of the Made in China Journal and involved in the other projects that he has mentioned uh, as well.
1: The Made in China Journal is really a success, a very impressive, and thank you for your work so that we get to understand more about contemporary China. Well, now I have to quickly jump into our topic and that is your new book, Congratulations. So who wants to tell us a bit about the background of creating this book? Any story behind the scenes?
2: As editors of the Made in China Journal, we have been engaging in debates about China for several years now. The Made in China Journal has been around, I think, for seven years now, or even longer, if you count what came earlier, and that was a newsletter. In our experience, in this experience, we found that the terrain uh, of the China debate over the past years has become increasingly fraught and polarized. Hawkish views have have been gaining ground, boosted on one side by the terrible choices made by the Chinese government, for instance, Xinjiang, Hong Kong the crackdown on civil society and uh, every form of social movement in China. At the same time, the anti China posturing of many politicians, funded and media. At the same time, we also saw apologetic views of China gaining more and more visibility as China ramped up the propaganda offensive. And also, we have seen among certain parts of the left that there was a sort of reaction to this kind of anti-China rhetoric, rhetoric coming from the right-wing politicians, journalists, with the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which is which has been a very worrying trend to us. So we were very concerned about this right-of-China apologism among the global left, and so we thought that we should write this book as a sort of intervention to propose a sort of alternative, a critical stance on the policies of the Chinese government, but from a leftist perspective, as opposed to the hawkish right wing perspective that is so strong at the moment. This uh, entails highlighting how the worrying policies and situations that we are seeing in China today, which are really worrying, of course nobody's denying that, fit within equally worrying global trends. So that was the idea that was more or less the background of this project.
1: The book is very timely, especially when the tension between China and the rest of the world seems like this, you know, like two camps. It's so tense at this moment. So thank you for the work. Well, now I want to ask a question. I noticed in your book, so since it's open access, it was so great I could just download it and read it. And I noticed there are two terms, a bit difficult to understand in the beginning. What about this And then the other turn is an essentialist argument. So you say they are kind of constructive in opposition to each other. However, both of them are very limited in their logic. I wonder if you can give us a bit more background in this Chinese context. What do you mean?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of following up on what Ivan was talking about, we identified these kind of seemingly ideologically opposed ways of talking about China, but we also noticed that they kind of shared a really similar set of fundamental assumptions underpinning the argument. Broadly, both of these sides kind of see China as this externalized other, a force that is kind of operating outside of the Real world in scare quotes that can then impact upon the normal functioning of things. So, in the book, we identified these ideologically distinct ways in which this framing has been utilized. And we first identified one set of framings that we called essentialist argumentation which is generally more aligned with hawkish accounts of China's increasing prominence on the on the world stage. And this perspective essentially dismisses any attempt to find similarities between dynamics in China or dynamics of Chinese globalization and things that are happening elsewhere, particularly uh, with liberal democracy. What an essentialist perspective uh, does is it assumes that we can analyze China in isolation, right? And any analysis must identify the authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party as the only constant that are underpinning that is underpinning all the problems that we are witnessing if outside actors are involved uh, such as foreign government multinational companies universities etc their participation is framed as the result of some sort of corruption at the hands of the CCP rather than a reflection of wider uh, systemic issues. So a classic example of essentialist argumentation would be detaching the current settler colonialism, mass detention, indigenous dispossession that's occurring in Xinjiang, from the broader global contexts and framing it as solely the result of CCP despotism, which, of course, the CCP deserves the blame for what is happening in Xinjiang. But we at the same time must acknowledge the ways in which what is happening there builds on legacies of global histories of concentration camps, draws legitimacy from the global war on terror. And is ultimately enabled through China's place in the global supply chains and broader expansion of technologies of uh, surveillance capitalism around the world. Moving on to whataboutism, which is kind of the flip side of the coin, is generally a mode of argumentation employed by those attempting to dismiss any criticism of China as hypocritical. And as Ivan has noted, whataboutism has increased in prevalence in, in recent years, particularly among some segments of the left who inexplicably, from my perspective, see China as the vanguard of global socialism and seek to defend the country Against what they considered to be unfair attack. And just as a quick aside here, I think we should note that many of the most fervent Western defenders of China uh, seemingly have essentially no or very little experience with China. Most of them haven't seemingly been there, and they're certainly not doing any serious research on the place. But some key examples of whataboutism we can see in the claims that. Anyone with even a tenuous connection to the US cannot condemn police brutality in Hong Kong. Uh, because of the existence of the U.S. carceral state, or that discussions of the brutal repression in Xinjiang are hypocritical because of mass internment on the U.S. border and long histories of Western settler colonialism. So essentially, what about is blinds by obscuring uh, basic similarities, interconnections, and it tries to muddy the water, arguing that basically one bad thing here cancels out another bad thing here. A huge missed opportunity to actually look at the basic uh, fundamental problems that are creating these situations all over the world.
1: I have read quite a lot of quasi-academic commentaries on China's social credit system, mostly penned by Western observers. I find your chapter on the social credit system the most balanced and fair discussion on this topic. The reason is that you also trace the design of credit system to the global development in data-driven governance techniques and using also this kind of data for risk assessment in the finance sector. In fact, when I teach this topic in the university, I often started by leading students to learn how China set up its credit registry system for banking. And then I further push the discussion to the current understanding of the social credit system. So can you tell us a bit about your key arguments in the chapter on social credit system?
0: Yes. And I mean, what you outlined here, I think, is exactly the approach that we take when thinking about the social credit system. When I've approached personally the social credit system from my history of researching microcredit programs and financialization in the Chinese countryside, I see it essentially as an extension of finance capitalism, the, the growth of finance capitalism in China throughout society and throughout the economy. However, when social credit is discussed in the media or in popular discussions, it's generally depicted as this dark perversion of the promised liberation technologies of our digital age. So, I mean, I think we can all remember back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was this seemingly promise that Internet and information and communication technologies were going to herald in this new age of global interconnectivity, coming enlightenment and freedom. Well, that didn't really happen. Did it? I mean, now, it, you know, we mo- we've moved rather quickly from that hope to the age of disinformation. And I think anxieties around social credit are wrapped up in this as social credit has really be- come to be seen as the inversion of these promises, a form of digital totalitarianism and a form of digital totalitarianism that could only emerge in the context of, of China's technologically advanced authoritarianism. However, while social credit undoubtedly has uh, dystopic potentials and is a reflection of the PRC's fixation on surveillance technology, it's more instructive really to see the system through the lens of China's integration into global capitalism and the urge to grease the wheels of capitalist development across the country. In this sense, social credit should be understood first as a credit system, right? And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong. They start looking at first as a surveillance system, and also it should be understood as a regulatory enforcement mechanism uh, aimed at facilitating capitalist relations uh, and socially engineering credit consciousness or modes of engaging with capitalism into society. So social credit is both inspired by and the logical extension of credit rating systems in advanced capitalist societies. It extends the logic of economic risk assessment by seeking to go beyond merely the collection of economic data and instead draw on a variety of big and alternative forms of data in order to assess risk, monitor regulatory compliance, et cetera. This really mirrors approaches that are being developed by fintech providers globally, and especially across the global South, who are using social media, psychometrics, and a variety of other tools to determine risk and provide credit in the name of financial inclusion. As such, social credit should really be seen as one manifestation of the creep of surveillance capitalism globally. And I think if we don't place it in this broader perspective, we simply get a misrepresentative view of what's actually going on.
1: Thank you. Well, now I go to Ivan. In the beginning, you introduced yourself as your expertise on labor rights and Chinese overseas investment. What are your key arguments in this book concerning this topic?
2: Well, Chinese investment overseas is often linked to labor rights abuses, and our key argument here is that while there are a a lot of horrific stories of exploitation, the key element that we should take into consideration when we look into Chinese investment overseas and labor rights, not so much the nationality of the investors, Chinese, Taiwanese, Hong Kongese, European or Anything, But rather the local context, it's important to look at how the context in which these companies operate, it is important to look at the state of the rule of law, legal enforcement, the role of trade unions in a a certain country, because that plays a very important role in how these kind of investors behave vis-a-vis the workers. In countries with stronger institutions, like for instance, there is a lot of research about Chinese investment in Germany, Chinese investor work will behave accordingly, so they will follow the rules. Of course, I mean, like, uh, like other investors. I mean, if you have a strong apparatus for legal enforcement, courts, trade unions, the incentives to misbehave are much less. In other countries, like Cambodia, where I currently work, where institutions are weaker, it is more likely that investors investor will commit abuses, but not only Chinese investors, also other investors, of course. So I think context is very important. And also in the book, we question another important thing is that we question whether there is, it makes sense to talk about Chinese investment as a whole, as a unique whole when it comes to labor rights as if there was a sort of consolidated Chinese model of labor relations, because there isn't. The truth is that there is no single labor relation model with Chinese characteristics. There is not such a thing. Even in China, it's very diversified. These investors are very diverse in terms of ownership and in terms of industry. A lot of, a lot of variables play here. And then on a similar note, we also criticized the idea that there is a direct link between the Belt and Road Initiative and labor rights abuse, showing that this kind of oversimplified, oversimplistic, frame overshadows deeper structural issues that are play here and also hampers more pragmatic effort to address labor rights violations in different contexts like in Cambodia. It obscures again, like linking back to what Nicholas said, this kind of views, this kind of simplified frameworks, uh, essentialistic frameworks in many ways, they just obscure the complexity of the dynamic dynamics at play, links to global trends, to global capitalism and things like that. So basically, this is our argument regarding labor, Chinese investment overseas and labor rights.
1: Now we move on to talk about the influence of Chinese actors on Western academia. In your book, you talk about there is a similarity between our acceptance of Confucius Institute money to the current operations in a lot of Western countries where we use neoliberal logics to run our universities. Can you elaborate on this?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So our final chapter is looking at uh, academia. Over the past few years, there has really been a very heated debate around the world but particularly in certain places about nefarious Chinese influence in universities coming from a number of different places. You know, there's been framings of Chinese students as being CCP spies, there has been worry about funding and collaboration with Chinese institutions, and there have been, of course, worries about uh, institutions like the Confucius Institute, which are seen to be kind of infiltrating Western universities and then corrupting them from within, right? All of these, I think there are clearly examples where there are some nefarious activities going on. What The way the discussion has actually been handled is much more, I would say, obscuring than illuminating, unfortunately. A lot of the time, this is really framed as a very essentialist uh, way of of seeing things, where the, the Chinese actors are seen as somehow uniquely bad and uniquely dangerous for Western values and Western institutions. However, if we think about what has been happening in our institutions of higher education over the past decades, what we've seen is mass marketization of academia, the implementation of managerial logic, budgets being cut. And I mean, here in different uh, national contexts, it's quite different. You know, I think from Finland and Sweden, the picture looks quite uh, different than it does in places like Australia the UK and the US, where the neoliberal university has really become the dominant, the only mode of operation and where students uh, are seen as customers and universities need to go out and find customers. Researchers are pushed to get funding from basically any source because budgets are being cut. There is really very little due diligence being done on where funding is coming from a lot of the time. Confucius Institutes are often seen by universities as a way to cut language Language instruction, outsource that to this institution that can bring in resources, can bring in teachers, rather than having the university finance this kind of thing themselves. And of course, when we think about the Confucius Institutes, They are unique in a certain way in that they enter into the university, unlike Cervantes Institutes or other national institutes that operate outside of the university. So Confucius Institutes, as far as kind of language and culture institutes go, are somewhat unique. However, they are not in any way unique when we think about what is happening with the marketized university and the fact that there are many different types of institutions that want to enter into the university and co-opt the university for its own means. When we're talking about universities in Western countries, we're thinking about decades, if not generations, of public investment in these institutions of higher education that are then being basically sold through marketization processes in order for companies, other actors to co-opt the knowledge infrastructure that's there and use it for their own means, right? So... With all of these examples, if we think about students, if we think about funding, if we think about Confucius Institutes, really the best way to counter all of this is to demarketize the university. If you want to get malicious outside influence, whether it's Chinese, whether it's corporate America, whether it's the military-industrial complex, out of your universities, the first step is to actually properly finance your universities and not push your researchers to go out and find funding from wherever they can not treat students like some sort of market that you need to go out and get as many of them as you can from any place possible and not open universities up to outside institutions that want to enter in and use the university infrastructure for its own devices however and again this is different in different national contexts we don't have this same sort of problem in sweden whatsoever but the people who are yelling the loudest about chinese influence in universities are certainly not proposing that we should increase public financing to universities. Most of the time, they're actually arguing for the opposite. In this sense, what we can see is uh, the discussion about malicious foreign influence in universities, particularly when it comes to China, is generally, I would say, a way for certain groups within society to push forward their agendas rather than a real concern over how universities are run.
1: This speaks to my heart as well. When we talk about uh, Confucius Institute or any kinds of international cooperative project with China, in fact, there is a logic in your book I really like, and that is you emphasize the locals also have their power if there's an institution or a project from China to be placed in our parts of the world, for instance, in Sweden or in Finland, definitely the project has to abide by the local law and then play along with the local custom. So it is not that the Chinese can just influence the locals, but the locals also have the power to influence and to negotiate and decide the outcome of the cooperative project. Now allow me to advertise the book again. This book is called Global China as Method. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. This book is available as an open access book on the internet. So, Nicholas and Ivan, thank you for sharing your insights with us. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, Julie Yuan Chen, Ivan Franceschini from Australian National University, and Nicholas Luber from Lund University.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.